But uh, when you go on social media at the moment, which is clearly the fount of all truth, um, <laughs> that Michael Holland and Champions Church are putting up the same logo. They're doing the same thing today as we are doing. And there's that growing sense of, of sharedness, of together we can uh, advance the kingdom of God, which is what it's about, isn't it? So um, that's really, really good. So today we are Hashtag, do you know him? Do you know him, the restorer? Do you know him, the restoration man? I don't know, maybe you don't. Uh, but if you're like us, um, we watch a lot of these kind of programs, uh, and our lives, in fact, uh, kind of live a lot of these kind of programs. Um, the restoration man, George Clark, on Channel 4, uh, he, uh, he goes to visit people, who have bought restoration projects. Uh, these projects, uh, buildings, are normally old and, uh, and often unusual. And uh, he goes to see them, at least on the television show bit, to support them and encourage them. He researches the background of their building and goes through all the records and archives about what it used to be. He advises them. And then at the end of the program, he turns up with this amazing book of memories, all the photos and information um, to give them about their property that they have restored. And there's also champagne, which is clearly means that all things are well. Do you know him? Do you know him? Does anyone know him? But of course, that's not our question, is it? Our question is, do we know him? Do we know Jesus? Do we know Jesus, the restoration man? I'm not really that bothered whether or not you know George Clark. We're talking this morning about restoration and the Greek word for restoration. Could one of you just tip that so I can see it? But the Greek word for restoration is this word. Thank you. Apocatastasis. Do we want to all say that after three? Apocatastasis. There you go. If you break it into three, it's not so bad. This is a Greek word for restoration, and it really just means this. The restoration of things back to how they should be. The restoration of things back to how they should be. And it seems to me that this is God's heartbeat, isn't it? God's heartbeat from the very beginning of time that things should be restored. From that very moment that Adam and Eve decided that they knew better than God and decided to go their own way. And when their relationship with their maker was broken, from that very moment, God's heartbeat has to been to restore all things back to how they were. And it's, it's the experience of his followers, isn't it? We've already referred to Psalm 23. He restores my soul. How many of us have used that psalm, spoken or sung those words over the years? And it's been our experience. He restores my soul some touch of grace, of the goodness of God, and just that sense of restoration that's our experience too. In Joel, it talks about the fact that the Lord restores the years the locusts have eaten. That God even manages to give back to us more in abundance than what we've lost. Because he's just amazing like that. 
And his aim and intention is to make all things new. That's what we've been talking about, isn't it? There is revelation that his aim is to make all things new. Everything back to how it was in the beginning, but more so, even better. When you think of a restorer, could you just do that thinking thing for me? When you think of a restorer, I wonder what characteristics you think of. I uh, confess to having nicked one or two of these from a really good talk at CAP that we went to. But hey, I'm just sharing it. I'm sharing it forward to you. Characteristics of a good restorer. Well, here's some of the things. They need to be visionary. They need to be patient and involved, not minding getting their hands dirty. They need to have the right tools. And they need to be willing to invest in the cost of the restoration. I'm going to come back to those things in a moment, but I want to ask you a question first of all. How do I know that I need restoring? How do I know that I need restoring? David asks in Psalm 42 and verse 5 this question, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And you know, that's a a great image for us here in Skipton because this is another image from the world of sheep and shepherding. You'll know because you've wandered around the dales too that occasionally you come across a sheep and it's laid down on its stomach and then it's shifted its weight over to the side to rest But on occasions, it can roll too far. And then you come across this kind of stranded sheep lying on its back with its feet in the air. The word for that in the Hebrew is the word cast down. Why are you cast down, oh my soul? Why are you like a sheep lying on its back with its feet flailing in the air. And at that point, for the sheep, it's not good news. It's kind of pathetic. It gets in a panic. It starts to struggle. It's really dangerous for the sheep because the gases start to build up in the sheep's stomach. It can cut off its circulation. It can die. When a sheep is cast down, serious, and it needs for the shepherd or some other kind stranger... (laughs) to come along, to roll the sheep back onto its side, to pick it up, because that's really easy with a sheep, isn't it? To pick it up, put it back onto its feet, to rub its legs so the circulation comes back in again, and to restore it. So David says, why are you cast down, O my soul? The sheep needs help. And maybe we do. And our cast-downness can come in all sorts of ways, can't it? Perhaps we just simply feel weary. Weary, a bit worn out. You kind of weary is like a stage on from tired, isn't it? Everything we feel, we feel weary about. Perhaps we feel a bit tatty, some of us. There's a kind of inner turmoil. We're easily agitated. We're more irritable than perhaps we are on a better day. (laughs) Some of us maybe have peeling paint. We're looking a bit sad. Sad on the inside, maybe sad on the outside. Lack of sleep. Perhaps those things that are vices known only to us have got a bit of a hold on us again. 
Perhaps we're overlaid with a fake. We may not actually, most of us, wear our Sunday best to church anymore. But some of us definitely wear our emotional Sunday best to church still, don't we? Perhaps actually we know that the reality is a bit rubbish, actually. It's a bit of a state. And so we've painted a fake over the top. We've covered it up. Because it's easier that way, isn't it? It's easier than being real when real's not great. So we've painted a fake. Some of us are faded. Our joy is gone. Perhaps we're a bit lonely. Some of us are damaged. Damaged by sin and we need forgiveness. Damaged some part of our lives and we need healing. I wonder whether you identify in any way with any of those things. Because if you do then perhaps you need some restoration today. So let's go back, shall we, to the characteristics of the master restorer, because, you know, that's what he is. He's not like some of us who tinker around the edges, hope for the best, possibly make things worse than they were at the start. He is the master restorer. He is the kind of national trust accredited type of restorer. He's the kind that you'd want your special table to go to. That's Jesus. And the first characteristic of the master restorer is this, that he's visionary. The restorer can see worth where others can't. And in just in, in real terms in the artwork, that's just so amazing and fascinating and inspiring. You know, not so long ago, some people found a painting and it had just been stuck in a cupboard for years and years and years and they, they took it to an art dealer and, and the person looked at it and went, this is not just a painting, this is a Hieronymus Bosch painting. It's the 26th only one in the world that we still have and just been in a cupboard because people couldn't see its worth. And then there was a guy who was wandering around a French flea market just looking for possibilities I suppose and he just looked on a stall and he went that engraving looks suspiciously like and he took it away bought it for like you know a couple of euros or whatever took it away it's an Albert Dürer engraving it's worth so much money he could see it when no one else could or oh, this recently there's been um, a story about um using the x-ray technology that we have now to look at works of art. And they'd put these two paintings underneath this x-ray and they'd found that underneath one was a Magritte painting and underneath the other one was a Degas painting. It's amazing, isn't it? Because some people have the vision to see beyond what everyone else sees. I imagine that you've never seen that painting before. This painting was um, handed down to a family by the great aunt. No one had any idea whether it was worth anything or not. All they knew was that it hung in the aunt's hallway for years and years and years. So they took it to experts and uh, they found out that it was painted by quite well-known American artists by the name of James Sawyer, who I've never heard of, it doesn't really matter. And, uh, but they said, well, you should have it valued, you should have it valued. So they put it up for sale. They sold it for $10,695. I don't know about you, but I don't like that painting. 
I can't see any worth in it. I can't see anything in it. I have no vision for that painting whatsoever, but somebody has. You know, this is the story of God, isn't it? To see worth where other people cannot. To look at Abraham at nearly 100 years old with a wife of a similar age, never had any children and say, you're going to be the father of nations. Yeah, right. I mean, that takes some vision, doesn't it? To look at Moses with his bit of a difficult start in life, sure a psychologist would have a field day with that, who once he got to adult had thought that the best way forward was to murder someone, then run away, who couldn't really speak very well and say, you're going to lead my people out of Egypt across the desert to the promised land, all two million of them. That requires some vision, doesn't it? Or Gideon, the smallest and the weakest and the least, threshing wheat in a wine press because he's so scared of the Midianites, and God comes along and says, mighty warrior. That takes some vision, doesn't it? But it is the story of Jesus, isn't it, too? The story of Jesus. To take Peter, who constantly suffered from foot and mouth disease, and say, I'm going to take you, and you're going to preach the gospel on the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 people are going to get saved, and then you're going to be one of the key leaders in the early church. To take the turbulent and argumentative James and John, and make one the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and the other the most devoted and loyal follower of Jesus, for whom that vision of revelation was his parting work. To take questioning Thomas and form his faith in such a way that he took the gospel to the ends of the earth, to speak to preoccupied Martha, who recognized in Jesus that he was the son of the living God. To take broken Mary Magdalene and make her witness to the resurrection. We have a saviour who can see how things should be, who sees potential, who sees what restoration means for people, who sees past what is, who is not disturbed or distracted or put off by what he sees in front of him. In fact, almost the opposite. Almost the opposite. You won't find a restorer in a new furniture shop, will you? You find them in the antique shops. Jesus looks at us and he finds joy in bringing beauty from damaged and discarded and disappointed people. That's what he's like. He has the vision to see how things could or should be in us. The second thing is this. They don't mind getting their hands dirty. Restoration work is a bit dirty, really, isn't it? I mean, it's not glamorous. You rarely see people wearing their best clothes to do restoration work. They normally got scruffs on or overalls with paint on their face and dust in their hair. That's normally how restoring people look. Sometimes the conditions are really hard. They're cold. It's winter. It's a bit grubby. Not the best. You don't get to do it in your best room. It generally means getting dirty and it needs patience. A bit like this cat waiting for the mouse to come out of the hole. Shed loads of patience. Now, Jesus, it says of Jesus in John 1, 
The word became flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhoods. He left the glory of heaven for muck and straw. Now that's not glamorous, is it? It's not glamorous to move from the glory of heaven and all that it is and will be to be born in a cattle trough, to live in a northern village where people said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He got his hands dirty. He got involved. He touched the leper. He touched the dead person. He was touched by a woman with bleeding. If we go back to that passage that we read, Jesus is involved. He goes to where the demon-possessed man is. He goes there intentionally to be there in that place, across the lake with him. He's walking with the crowds. I love this story. I love it. He's walking with the crowds. And he turns around and he goes, who touched me? And the disciples, you can, you can feel the cogs turning. They're going, how do we put this gently to him? Jesus, everyone's touching you. That's just how it is. <coughs> Jesus said, no, it's different. It's different. Gets involved. He's there with them. He goes to the house of Jairus. He doesn't just say something from afar. He goes into the house. He's with the dead girl in the house. He's there with the uncleanness. All these people are ritually unclean. People like Jesus should stay away from them. He goes where they are. He touches them. He gets involved in all the mess he associates with tax collectors and sinners. He associates with all the wrong people. He is with us in it. And he is patient in it with us as well. He doesn't say, you've had your 10 sessions now. Go away. You're not sorted. You weren't quick enough to respond. He is patient with us for the whole of our lives. His restoration projects are all going to be perfect. By the way, that's you. When we see him face to face, we'll be like him. But he's not giving up on us until that point, working with us to restore us. The third thing we'll come to in a minute. I love this cartoon. Abraham Maslow, if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. But our master restorer has the right tools, doesn't he? Everything doesn't look like a nail because the only tool he's got is a hammer. It's not like that. You know, at Spring Harvest the other week, I went to a seminar that a friend of mine was doing to give her a bit of support. And at the end, people were asking some questions. I was disturbed by some of the questions that were being asked. Not because of the way they were being asked, but the sort of things people said, somebody said, um, I've gone through a really difficult time recently. And, um, and my doctor thinks that it would be really helpful for me to have some counselling. But I've been told that I should just say Bible verses out loud. I just, she was sat behind me. I just wanted to turn around and hug her and say, Bible verses are great. You know, I like, I believe in those, by the way. But, but so are other tools, aren't they? Sometimes we need to talk through something with someone. That's what counseling is. 
talking through something with someone who is trained and good at asking us the right questions and listening to what we're saying. Sometimes we need other kinds of help, whether it's medication or the friends, friends support. Sometimes it's chocolate. Sometimes it's exercise. Sometimes it's more iron tablets. It's whatever. The right tools come in different shapes and sizes to us. And Jesus knows what we need. Sometimes prayer is immediate. Sometimes it's ongoing. What we need is always the Bible because it's God's word to us and it feeds our spirits and our minds. But there's all sorts of different ways in which God works in us. And the key here is discernment, isn't it? Discernment is everything. Sometimes you need a hammer, but sometimes you need a brush. And if when you need a brush, you use a hammer, it's not great. But if you use a brush when you do need a hammer, it's not going to work either, isn't it? We need the discernment. And Jesus does this. When he goes to the demon-possessed man, he's not using a brush, guys. He's using a hammer, probably one of those long drills, in fact. He speaks to the demons. He says, leave. They leave. The man is completely in his right mind. But when he speaks to the woman who's made to fess up that it was her, oh my word, he's so gentle, so beautiful, so tender with her, so kind. There she is, unclean, embarrassed in the middle of the crowd. Jesus says, my daughter, your faith has healed you. And he goes to Jairus' house. And they say, oh, don't bother to come, she's dead. I mean, there's not much compassion in that sentence, is there? He just goes in with his friends and with mum and dad. And the people are wailing and crying. Feels like to me, he says, quit your greeting to them, doesn't he? <laughs> Go away, stop it walks in, but he comes with authority, he takes her hand and says, get up. And then in Mark's gospel, we have similar stories, he holds onto the hand of the leper, and then the story after that is those, the friends who put their friend through the roof, destroy the house, the opposite of restoration, and the guy comes, lands on the ground, he's paralyzed, you know, again, it's this discernment, isn't it? Because Jesus looks at him and he doesn't use the same tools he's already used. He looks at him and he says, what you need is for your sins to be forgiven. But he knows. He knows when to say, take my hand, walk. He knows when to say, you need your sins forgiven. He knows when to say, your faith's healed you, it's already done. He knows. And he uses always the right tools so we can trust him. We can trust him that if the work that we need is brush work, he'll use a brush. And if it's hammer work, he'll use a hammer. We can trust him. The other characteristic of the restorer is this, that he's willing to invest in the cost. You know, we watch loads of those kind of programs. <laughs> When the restorer sets out, they rarely know what it's going to cost, do they? But Jesus does, and he's prepared and he's willing to invest in the cost. He's prepared for the sacrifice that it probably 
might or will entail. And that cost comes in all sorts of shapes and sizes, doesn't it? Costs of time, of comfort, because sometimes we need to get out of our comfortable places, in emotion, in prayer, in resources. You know, Jesus has that. He has time for you. Not just for the person sat next to you or the person at the back or the front, for you. He got out of his comfort zones, didn't he? He came to earth. He has compassion. Sometimes he's even angry on our behalf. Jesus prays for us. Now, I'm going to just say this, and then I'll probably run away. Sometimes when you ask me to pray for you, I forget. Phil, Phil doesn't. He's better than I am. But you know what? Jesus is always interceding for you at the right hand of the Father. That's one of the ways that he brings restoration into your life and all his resources. You know, he ultimately paid the cost, didn't he? For our salvation, for the new life that we have, for eternal life in God, for our forgiveness. He paid the ultimate price. The ultimate cost is death on the cross. If he's already paid the ultimate cost, he'll Everything else will be okay, won't it? He's willing to invest whatever it takes for you. Not so long ago, a small church called the Sanctuary of Mercy Church in the village of Borja in Spain hit the headlines. In 1930, a painter called Elias Garcia Martinez painted a fresco of Jesus called Eke Homo. And it looks like that. Behold the man. I mean, it's, it's all right, isn't it? It's maybe not like the finest painting ever painted, but it's just in this small church in this village in Spain. Well, clearly it needs a bit of restoration, doesn't it? It's looking a bit tatty, the paint is peeled, the colours are faded, and it needs some restoration. So in 2012, an elderly lady who was a member of the church there, called Cecilia Jimenez, decided that she might do a bit of said restoration on this fresco. And, uh, and this is what she came up with. <laughs> it's been compared to a blurry potato <laughs> or a monkey. The... In fact, it's with such a scandal that it's become a tourist attraction. <laughs> thousands and thousands of pounds have poured into the church. So if anyone wants to have a go at any restoration work, feel free. <laughs> My question to you is this. When you think of Jesus, do you have the wrong image in your mind? When you think of Jesus, do you have the wrong image in your mind? When you think of Jesus, the restorer, what comes to your mind? Is it the real Jesus? Not particularly saying that that one either is. Or is it something a bit blurry and a bit distorted and slightly frightening and not at all convincing? What image do you have of Jesus? when you think of him. When you think of 
making yourself vulnerable enough to be restored by Jesus, what you think that Jesus is like is everything in that moment. Are you afraid that perhaps if you let Jesus touch you, you'll end up looking like a blurry potato? Or do you trust that he is the master restorer and that he will not make things worse but more beautiful? And that he even has the capacity to weave in, like the Japanese art, our broken and frail, frail places into his masterpiece to make us more beautiful because of the broken places not in spite of them. What do you think when you think of Jesus? Do you trust him? Do you know him? Because it's Jesus, the restorer, the perfect, beautiful, compassionate, good, merciful, kind, knowledgeable Jesus that we are talking about. I'm going to ask Claire if she'll come up because she's been brave and she's just fairly briefly that wasn't a subtle hint (laughs) going to share with you something that's just happened that illustrates what we're talking about this morning morning um as a kid uh i had a room full of posters uh most of them were bon jovi um but the biggest The biggest uh, poster I had was of a Lynx helicopter. Um, As my dream was to join the army, go through Sandhurst and fly helicopters. Not every little girl's dream. (laughs) Um, Life took a very different path and uh, it's a big regret I've had since I was 18 years old. 25 years later, here in Skipton, um, doing uh, some healing prayer, I was quite overwhelmed with the uh, deep regret with the decisions that I'd made all those years ago. However, God revealed to me that he had created me exactly what I had always thought I should be. Um, He said, the army I had joined was his. He then said, I am an officer in his army. I wear the armor of God. The weapons I would have used would have been to kill and destroy. The weapon I now use is to bring life and give hope. I am now doing the job I knew I should have been doing all those years ago. Regret has gone. I am restored. Thank you, Claire. Thank you, Claire. I'm going to ask Ella, because she's volunteered as well. By the way, we're looking for people to share a little bit of story. So it doesn't have to be really, really long every week. So uh, get your thinking caps on, guys. Those who know me well will know I have a long history of clinical depression. Uh, It goes back over many years. um, And it comes and goes, but it's generally well managed, thanks to fantastic support from family very special friends and amazing GPs. Hmm. In the early 1990s, however, it was so severe that I was treated as an inpatient for quite a number of months 
and underwent a full course of ECT. Now, one of the, full if, one of the side effects of ECT is that it affects your memory. But then again, so does depression. So it's hardly surprising that I have what I call black holes in my memory. Um, there's things I can only remember secondhand, either because I've seen the photographs or because Peter's recounted memories to me. And we can laugh now. I can't remember that Peter whisked me away on a romantic weekend for our 10th wedding. <laughs> what a shame. Um, <laughs> but I have now seen the photograph of him. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, uh, my sister-in-law, who took the boys for us that weekend, also, you know, um, confirms it. And said, yes, yeah, she did go away. <laughs> um, but my greatest sadness is that actually there's a lot of my boys growing up mm -hmm. that I don't remember. Uh, things like Matthew's first day at school. I think I can remember Simon's, uh, but again, I'm not sure whether it's a borrowed memory or not. The boys being in church nativities or even school nativities. I can remember Simon's, but then we've got the video. So <laughs> who knows? They're memories that as parents you want to store away and treasure for a lifetime. And that I can't remember. Sometimes it's like a side swipe. Watching the nativity here mm. can reduce me to tears. Not, well, yes, it is lovely, <laughs> but it's also, I don't have that memory from mm. my children, and mm. it breaks my heart. And recovery from depression isn't a straight line, you know, you, you're diagnosed, you get a tablet, and then it goes. Um, and it was during one of my many dips, I, I, was actually, I was trying to pretend to the church that this wasn't happening, uh, and I was on keyboard one week, and Helen Sellers came to me afterwards, because she had really spotted the chink in my armour that this wasn't a good time for me. Um, I was really hurting, struggling with the thought that I'd lost so much of the boys' childhood and they'd only remember me as an emotional wreck. And I felt completely hopeless, both as a mum and a wife. Now, Helen was lovely. One of my fears about opening up to people is that they're going to offer to pray and lay hands on me. And if you've ever walked with depression of any degree, Actually, that's anathema. You really don't want them. You want people to understand, somehow not to know, to pray, but not be with you. Um, but Helen was lovely. She just gave me a hug, let me cry, and she said she would pray for me. And she sent me a note during the week uh, to remind me of this, but said that while we were together, she felt God prompting her to share a verse, but had felt perhaps I wasn't ready to hear it. And it was Joel, chapter 2, verse 25. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, which Lisa's already referred to. Um, at the time, I think this must have been about 2002, because both boys were actually at boarding school. And although I worked at that boarding school, obviously their lives were so busy and crazy, and that, you know, going to see their mum, who was on the staff, was just not a cool thing to do. So, anyway, long story short, um, there have been many ups and downs, increasingly fewer downs and longer ups. Uh, and we've taken opportunities as a family to, to really set down family memories, and if you like, sort of um, making a new set of memories, if you like. Um, Matthew did a gap year in India, and I cope with that all right, because that was sort of like the end of school, but it was when he went to college in Manchester, the start of adult life, that again, I just thought, I've got so much missing, uh, and I really struggled with it, and it felt 10 times worse. It was the start of my empty nest, which already had emotional holes in it. Um, when Simon left school, he came to live at home, and that was just great, and I felt, oh, it's wonderful. 
So when Simon, Matthew came home, wow, you, you can sort of imagine how that was. Uh, at September 2010, Matthew had graduated and he got a job in Bradford and he came home to live, which meant there were four of us in the house. And after about a week, when I think most of the unpacking and laundry was done, um, I suddenly realised what an amazing sense of contentment I felt. Mm. My, my boys, now men, were at home. I just, I, there aren't words to describe how that felt. And I remembered Helen's card, which I still keep in, in the Bible by my bed. And it really felt that God had restored to me years that locusts had previously eaten. He didn't, he hasn't restored till I suddenly remember things. But when Lisa said about apocatastasis, mm, well restoration of things back to how they should be, I look, and God has given me memories that I can draw on and enjoy and share and laugh about. Mm that, if you like, are, are even better than those. I mean, I can't grieve them. I'm not saying it doesn't hurt, but I can't grieve them. God's given me so much more. Mm. And I do feel, as a mum, that God has restored them. Thank you so much, um, both of you. It's, you know... Make yourself, make yourself very vulnerable, don't you? But actually, it's so helpful um, to the rest of us uh, to hear your stories, to have that honesty and to, to be able to see what God has done in, in both of you, two really different stories, but just, just really beautiful. So thank you so much. We have no idea, really, the depth of treasure that is in this congregation and that's kind of what we want to come out is some of those treasures so that we can all gaze at them in admiration and go wow this is beautiful look what God has done so please be willing to share with us we really appreciate that one of the things that um two minutes right one of the things that I um that's picked up for me through those stories and others that we've heard is that we together are God's restoration project we are being restored and restorers all at the same time. We are restored by Jesus, but we are then restorers in the likeness of Jesus, aren't we? This is community. You know, Claire wasn't praying on her own last week. She was praying with a bunch of people who are being the hands and feet and eyes of Jesus to her and, and with her in that. Ella hasn't walked this long journey alone She's had amazing Peter and, and the boys and friends and, and church. And, you know, this is a community of restoration together. None of us are restored solely on our own. Sometimes amazing things can happen in those moments when Jesus just encounters us. But this is also a together thing where we are like him, serving each other, restoring each other, being restored and restoring all at the same time. We are God's restoration project and just drew me back to this same passage that we keep quoting which I feel was really we feel was a kind of prophetic word to us when we were going about purchasing the house and it's these words from Isaiah chapter 58 from the message uh, yet again and I just wanted to finish with these not to take away from any other personal stuff but because it's more than that because it's lots of individual personal stuff that builds something bigger and these verses say this, You'll be like a well-watered garden, a gurgling spring that never runs dry. 
You'll use the old rubble, there's lots of that, isn't there, Martin? Old rubble of past lives to build anew, rebuild the foundations from out of your past. You'll be known as those who can fix anything, restore old ruins, rebuild and renovate, make the community livable again. This is all about restoration, isn't it? It's all about taking what we are, which is imperfect, a bit damaged and broken and peely paint, Meeting Jesus, the restorer, him doing amazing stuff in our lives, sometimes rapidly, sometimes slowly, sometimes a bit up and downly, and building that community and building that so that we have that restoring impact in this community where we are. That's why we do all this stuff, by the way, to make our community livable again. That's why we're really excited about doing a bit more of it with the other church than town. Because together surely has to be better, doesn't it? Rebuilding from rubble and ruin in order to show God's presence and his power and his glory, what he can do. So Jesus, the restorer, do you know him? Do you know him? And this morning, do you need to know him in a specific way? Is there something where you think, yeah, it's that today, it's that Maybe you just need to talk to him. Maybe you need to come for prayer. Maybe you need to turn to the person next to you. Maybe you need to do something, to let go of something. Whatever it is this morning, he is in the business of restoring, and he's really good at it. So trust him. Amen.